Welcome to the DevOps Diversity Podcast, the all-inclusive place to talk people, process, and technology for enterprise transformation and modernization. I'm your host, Connor Dellenbank. Today's episode is brought to you by Strategio. Strategio is dedicated to increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion for underrepresented and underserved groups within enterprise IT. Strategio sources STEM graduates from universities across North America, invests in paid training and relocation, trains in skills including cloud and DevOps, site reliability engineering, full stack development, cybersecurity engineering, and data science, and then delivers these highly trained technologists to enterprise organizations on a one to two year contract to hire program. If you would like to find out more about the Strategio program, please go to strategio.tech. Sometimes you meet people that can do it all. Today's guest is exactly that, and it's only right that I make the following detailed introduction into her background so that you understand the range of experience she brings. Lisa Burton, PhD, is the Vice President of Hearst Lab, where she provides investment and support for early-stage, women-led startups that innovate across media, data, healthcare, and technology. At Hearst Lab, Lisa identifies prospective startups to invest in and supports the portfolio companies in residence, including advising on data science and product. She also leads innovation initiatives across Hearst in collaboration with the Hearst Lab Scouts, a group of over 100 women executives that work full-time at Hearst and donate time to the lab. Lisa was previously the founder and chief data scientist of a startup that leveraged social media data to help brands understand and connect with their customers online. Throughout her career, she has built and led data science groups at startups and as a consultant across diverse industries, from mobile payments to advertising to healthcare. She came to data science from engineering, where she specialized in data-driven modeling and machine learning to predict the motion of swimming animals. Lisa holds a PhD and master's degree from MIT and a Bachelor of Science from Duke, all in mechanical engineering. Lisa volunteers to support women in business and STEM through WITNY, Pipeline Angels and Girls Who Code. In addition, she mentors startup founders through NYU Summer Launchpad, Project W, Springboard Enterprises and NUMA. She is an advisory board member of Duke University's Department of Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science and serves on the NYU Innovation Fund's Investment Review Board. Hey Lisa, how are you today? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Really happy to be hosting you here on the DevOps Diversity Podcast. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) So I just wanted to be able to have the opportunity to host you here, give you this platform to share what you're doing in your own career with Hearst Lab and all the other amazing women-led startups you're, you're leading as well. Oh, thank you so much. So Lisa, I think it's what's important. Obviously, we've given you a brief intro there and a, and a bio, but uh, from your own words, I want to hear how you have got to this point where you're a, a VP at Hearst you, you, and you're running Hearst Lab. You've got all these women-led startups going on and multiple other things outside of that. Who is Lisa? What have you been doing? Tell us how you've got to this point because it's pretty amazing. Yeah, good question. So I wish I could say that it's all been very well planned and completely intentional, but that's definitely not the case. So I think if you had told me 10 years ago when I was a grad student that I would be investing in and advising startups, I would have been very surprised, but I like that. Part of me hopes that I'm surprising myself every 10 years down the road. So, you know, really when I think about my journey in tech, I think about it in three different pieces of figuring out what I like. So first it was engineering and then data science and then startups. So when I go to engineering, I, you know, I always loved math and science growing up. And whenever I was trying to figure out what to study in school, every adult that I talked to said, oh, you like math and science, you should do engineering. 
but I hadn't grown up around any engineers and I didn't really know what it meant to be an engineer. And whenever I would ask them, they would say, you know, it's designing cars and building bridges. And those are incredible jobs, but they weren't necessarily my passions, right? I didn't necessarily just love bridges or cars. So I ended up going into uh, my undergrad as a math major and took some engineering classes and pretty quickly figured out that I loved mechanical engineering. And then it was all the pieces of math that I really liked just applied to sort of real world problems. I think something else I saw is that engineering really allowed you to pursue a number of different career paths. It wasn't that you study engineering and then you are an engineer for the rest of your life. It's that you learn a way to think and problem solve. And I think that's really common a lot among a number of different STEM majors and um, you know, different uh, topics like that. And so I ended up doing research my junior and senior years of college and I had two incredible advisors. And it was really because of that experience and those advisors that I decided to go to grad school. I think previously grad school had never been on my radar because I thought it was too expensive. I already had student loans. I didn't want, really want any more. But because I really enjoyed the research I was doing and my advisors helped me understand that for engineering, that there was significant funding available. So all of a sudden grad school became really interesting. So I ended up getting into MIT. I did my master's and PhD in mechanical engineering there. And it was really during that time that I discovered, discovered data science. Um, and I did that through taking some machine learning courses and ended up using those in my grad school research and really enjoyed that part of the work. So I decided I'm gonna become a data scientist. And this was still a pretty new term. You know, it was, I think, called sexiest job of the year or something the year that I decided <laughs> to do it. Not the reason I decided to do it, but it checked all the boxes of what I'd really loved about mechanical engineering. And it was exciting to be a part of, you know, such a rapidly growing field. But I had to figure out how to break in and how to convince someone else that I was a data scientist. And, you know, this is really the beauty of the digital world is that I didn't need to wait for someone else to give me that specific experience. There's ways to figure it out on your own. So I have an aunt and uncle, a very patient aunt and uncle who have a virtual floor plan business, and they were trying to figure out their, their digital marketing strategy. And for me, I knew that this really came down to understanding data. So I asked them to let me manage their online ad campaigns and wrote some models to help optimize their conversions. And so at the surface, this sounds completely different than what I was doing with my research, but under the hood, it was actually very similar algorithms, time series predictions, classification. And so I was able to take that experience and talk to it whenever I went out to apply for jobs as a data scientist and ended up convincing somebody to hire me in Austin. And so I moved there and was working in paid search advertising initially. And you know that first job I think was really the greatest first job I could have asked for. So I was their first data science hire. It was my first job as a data scientist. And so we had to figure each other out, but that process was really fun. The, the company was probably 50 or 60 people, so I could easily talk to somebody in every department or division and see where different opportunities were. And there was just really great buy-in from everybody and excitement about data. So I would host lunch and learns and office hours, and, and people were just really into it, which was fun to be around. And, you know, I think there were a couple of things about that first job that were really important lessons that I learned you know, it's so important to love the team that you're working with and that I loved being able to see the big picture and how everything connected together. So that size of company was something that I think was a really good fit for me. And then just overall, the energy, the pace of you know, early stage startups was just great to be around. I know you're in the middle of that right now, so probably can relate. I know, I know the feeling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So really that brings me to the third piece, which is discovering my love of startups. And you know, after working at that first company for a while, I decided that I wanted to be a part of building a product that people actually interacted with. So I joined a mobile app company that lets you pay your bar or restaurant tab from your phone. And so again, I was their first data science hire. So there was a lot of opportunity to make a really big impact, which was very exciting. And I also built and led the data science team there. Um, and during the time when I was working at this company, I was approached by lots of different folks who would just ask me, just had questions about data science. So for their businesses, 
you know, how could I use this set of data to help solve this problem? Or should I be using data science in some way? And I loved helping them think through those problems. So after a while, I decided to give it a go and go off uh, on my own as a consultant. And I think that was a big surprise to some people who knew me pretty well. I would say I'm usually risk averse, but I thought about it in this way. I think there's business risk and there's personal risk. And I had felt confident at that point that I would be able to find a job. I had built up a pretty good skill set. I knew data science was in demand. And so that felt more like a business risk to me. So, you know, I put aside a bit of savings and said, I'm going to go through this. And if I haven't figured it out by the time I get to down to the, the you know, the last cent in the bank account, then I'll move on and do something else. And before I could actually get to the bottom of those savings, I was invited by one of my clients to join him as a co-founder of a brand new startups startup. And so I did. Um, and our company used social media data to help brands understand their customers online. And so we did the whole fundraising round and went out. We met Hearst Lab, where I am now. They liked what we were doing. They decided to invest. So we packed up and moved from Austin to New York to join the lab full-time. And uh, once we were in Hearst Lab, I just completely fell in love with it. I felt that it was something very different than what I had seen in the startup world and offered so much to founders. And it was just this really strong community of these great women-led teams. And the head of the program, a couple of years later, ended up inviting me to join the team full-time. And that's now been about four years ago. So we've now invested in 35 women-led startups that are worth over a billion dollars collectively. Unbelievable. I, I, yeah, you, I, I'm on Zoom for those that are listening. So I'm, at least you can see I'm smiling. It's like, I, I just, it's so great getting to sit in this seat and speak to people who are like you, who've had this amazing experience and who share your story. And I, I get to tie in some of the differences and comparisons between people as well and see what has helped each person get to where they are. Firstly, the end, the, the current moment, the fact that you've invested in 35 women-led startups and they've got the valuations up over a billion dollars like that that is amazing so we have to just highlight like how cool that is and what you're doing and um and then coming back to the beginning one of the key things that you said was engineering to you was solving problems using logic and that is something that especially because we focus on hiring investing and training junior level stem graduates I'm constantly trying to figure out what is the what makes someone special, what is different. And I always say, from a technology perspective or from a skills perspective, it's solving problems using logic. That's really the key thing. And really the tool and the technology is just a vessel for how you solve those problems. And the mindset comes before that. So it's kind of interesting to hear that your exact way of, of getting into engineering and why you liked it and the reasons behind it. And then I found it great to hear the 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 leaps you've taken the advice there was a, a couple of really good mentors that you you mentioned that you had uh, during your time with MIT their guidance helped you keep growing and so I think that's a highlight to everyone that's listening that it doesn't matter where you are in your career but especially if you're earlier on or about to embark on a career you need some mentors people that will sometimes they even sponsor you and help you get to the next stage they might help you expand your network or collaborate but they might just give you some great advice and you only know so as much as your own mind can, can take in an, on a daily basis. So why not have other people share their knowledge with more experience than what you have as well? Absolutely. And I think several years ago, I always thought of mentors and sponsors as people that were much further along in their career and were very successful and had everything figured out. But I think what I figured out since then is that the people who have been most impactful to me are those that are one or two steps ahead of me. So they just fundraised and now I'm going to fundraise or they just switched careers and are figuring out investing. So I think that's something else that I would uh, just sort of make note of is that your peers are a really great resource and it doesn't need to be, you know, a fortune 500 CEO that is your mentor. There are, you're probably surrounded by really great mentors already. Yeah, someone who can understand where you're at and actually often align with the same uh, successes and challenges that you're going to face and be able to give direct feedback. So actually, if there's a, too much of a gulf between you and the person who's advising you, they might not understand the problems you're facing and actually be able to give any real world advice, even if they sound like a cool and shiny person to have. It might be better to have someone who's closer to your level. Exactly, exactly. 
So you're at this point now, 35 women-led startups have come through the program that you're currently leading. So I want to understand, I obviously know already, I have a lot of beliefs about why diversity and women in technology matter and why representation matters. But I think of me as someone who's stupid and hasn't got any experience and no idea and doesn't believe in it. Why does it matter to to run a women-led technology accelerator and incubator like Host Lab? Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many parallels between hiring and investing and the importance of diversity. But the bottom line is that we believe that diverse teams build better businesses. So when you have different perspectives looking at the same problem, you're going to come up with better solutions. That's our investment thesis. And there's actually a lot of research that backs this up. We see that women-led teams have two and a half higher returns than male-led teams. They exit about a year faster They've seen about 41% increase in revenue. And there's very similar stats for ethnically diverse leadership teams as well. So I think one of my favorite stats is they're 35% likelier to outperform counterparts that aren't ethnically diverse. So there's just so many examples out there of really great companies. But I think it might be even easier to see uh, sort of the scarier stories. So what happens when you don't have a diverse team in place? So one example that you might already be familiar with is a recruiting tool that was built by Amazon as an internal tool. So they wanted to help some of their recruiting teams more quickly review resumes. So they used all of their historical data on who had been hired in the past and who hadn't built this model. And what they ended up seeing is that the model they created penalized resumes that had words like women's on them or for example, women's lacrosse, or graduates of women's colleges, and it rewarded resumes with verbs most often found on male engineers' resumes, like executed and captured. So they were able to see this bias as they were creating it, so they ended up scrapping the project, but it really goes to show that they're are already biases that you can bake in just from using that historical data. And if you don't have the right minds looking at those algorithms and the outputs as you're building them, it can get really dangerous. So thank goodness, you know, it wasn't live, but I think the the stat is something like over half of HR managers will be using AI in their jobs in the next five years. And so those products that they're using really need to be built by diverse teams if they're going to be the robust tools that aren't already introducing that bias into the hiring process. Yeah, that, that's such a good uh, explanation because I, I realize we're in a time where most people seem to nod and agree that this is the right thing to do. At the same time, we have a large way to go in terms of really increasing representation and, and diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging for all people. There is still a way to go. And it's, yes, people might want to, to do this because they, they might think, okay, one, I might take a box. One, I might actually believe in it. Or not three, I, I might re- be an actual ally and this really matters to me. Or people might realize, well, hey, none of it matters to them so much, but then they actually care about the money. And we're talking here, the actual data is talking about the money. Can You will have more revenue, more returns, higher performing these things matter to pretty much anyone in business. And then yeah. if you care about the, the pieces that we're also talking about, then that's fantastic. And hopefully you'll continue to, to, everyone will continue to educate themselves and learn more about that as well. That's exactly right. And what's fascinating is that this is really a market opportunity that not many people are seeing. So if, in terms of investing right now, 14% of VC funding goes to startups that have at least one female founder. So if I say that the other way, 86% of VC funding goes to startups with all male founders. So they're not a single female founder on that team, which is just a mind-blowing statistic, right? So the data for people of color, women of color is unfortunately even worse than those numbers. So, you know, we see this as a really great business opportunity to invest in these teams that are for some reason underestimated when we know that they outperform their counterparts. And so really that is our investment thesis at Hearst Lab and it feeds into our mission. So we think about that in three different pieces. The first, of course, is to create value from the investments that we make. Second is that we look to bring visibility and opportunity to women at Hearst and in Hearst Lab. And then third is to bring innovation to Hearst through our investments. 
Yeah. So the, the, the use of, of, of Hearst Lab then to accelerate new ideas and concepts. So there might be a time that a new application service or product is needed at Hearst and you've got a place to actually uh, quickly scale it up, maybe fail fast or maybe make something successful. And that's a place to do it as well. That's right. I think we've become sort of a central hub where people, Hearst employees come when they have an idea just to sort of test the waters. Do you think this is feasible? Is this an interesting idea? I would say even more so. Uh, we have employees that are a big part of our evaluation process. We have over 360 different businesses, which means we have experts in so many different industries. So why wouldn't we incorporate them in our process when we're doing diligence on a company? And what we've seen is that employees that are involved in that process, they start seeing these founders who have you know, quit their cushy day job, dedicated everything to building this company and solving this problem that's keeping them up at night. They've built something with maybe two or three people. That's really inspiring. And so the employees that see that, they start thinking about that side project that's gathering dust on their desk or that idea that's sort of been, you know, tickling the back of their mind. And they think, you know what, maybe I I can start to do that. I don't necessarily need a huge budget and a huge team. Let me just give it a go and see if I can move that forward. So I, I would say that's the biggest way that we're seeing the influence of our startups go into the bigger company. Wow, that's that's so interesting. So it's actually inspiring other people. And I totally relate and can understand why that matters, especially as you mentioned, I, I'm also leading a, a new startup myself. And it, it is cool to be around more and more founders and, and hear people's problems. Like I go to different meetup groups and events here in Miami and, and try to hear other people's scenario and just be around more, more and more entrepreneurs. And it's mind blowing, like, wow, you built that with two people or three people, like you said, that's a story I see a lot. And it's like, if they can do it, then I can do it. And if I can do it, other people can do it. And that's why I also want one of the things that I slip out every now and then. So people know as well, it's like, yes, I, I'm a mixed race person. You know, I'm, I'm from a black and a white family. I moved to America with like really like three or four contacts and they were all in the company that I worked with. And I didn't go to a top university in, even in the UK. And I definitely have no US education. I have my degree from England. So I'm like, if I can do that in five years and just by working and building good contacts, good networks, then anyone can do it. And the feeling of pursuing something for yourself and starting you know, your own idea and then leveraging what you have around you and getting the right resources and starting to pursue that mission, it's really fun. So I can see why it would be like that for people within Hearst as well, seeing your multiple founders and how great they're doing and, and hearing just the challenge and thinking, right, well, maybe it's time I start leading this new product or service as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just on the, the note of what you just described in your experience, it just made me think about as we're evaluating companies, every founder is impressive given what they've dedicated and what they're building. But it definitely does stand out when somebody has been grittier to get there, right? Someone who didn't grow up doing Harvard Business Review case studies at the dinner table, right? They weren't necessarily surrounded by that. And when they had an idea for a startup, they had a ton of friends and family to raise a million dollars. When somebody has really worked for every step and they're there and they've built the product and the company, that to me is so much more impressive. That is the founder that I want to put money on that I think can get the company to the next level because they've already demonstrated how resourceful they can be to get where they are. Yeah, th this is this is golden advice, by the way. I, I think this is so good what you're sharing right now and, and uh, letting people have an insight into like the type of founder that you would like to see, the what matters to you. And I actually agree 100% on that. It's both in terms of if I'm looking at who could be part of the, the mission here at Strategio in terms of our internal employees or the people that are our technologists, the people that we invest in, train and, and deliver to our customers as well. I'm thinking, right, all these companies that we work with and, and or will work with and provide services to, they are looking for top level graduates from the top universities and they're also kicking themselves that there's no diversity there. And I'm like, what is what are some of the, the lowest or the middle? Where, where's, the, where's the people that no one else has looked at? I'm not saying everyone in every university is going to be at the right fit, but there could be a university that's ranked like in the top bottom percent of the country that has five amazing candidates that could be the best engineer you've ever heard of. Because guess what? They're solving problems. They have the grit, the determination. Um, and they're, they're, back in 2017, I, I went to, to Cuba and wrote an article about how Cuba is solving amazing problems using their engineering mindset with so little resource. Um, and it was just so fascinating to see that they knew how to like 
even the radio, the CD player, the music, the speakers, they would take everything apart if it started to break because they didn't have the resources that we have. They don't have the even the internet service that we have. But I saw some unbelievable technologists, like one of their Docker captains there who was giving really amazing insights into how Docker works, how Kubernetes works to people who, like at the very beginning of, of this container era that we're in now. Yeah, so I just, I went on a tangent there because I'm just thinking about what you said and how having a basically a non-linear background or having the, the non-traditional background, whoever has that and who's sitting and wondering if they can do it, listen, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And also if you listen to things like Lisa, Lisa Schisler-Smith from Netflix, a former librarian who became an engineering manager at Netflix, constantly we're looking at these kind of stories and trying to share how others can get there and how we can open the door. And I have to say, Connor, that you have a really good eye for that. So as you know, how we originally met was through recruiting a member of our team who had, I would say, a pretty non-traditional DevOps background and is one of the best employees I've ever worked with. And I remember the call we had where you described his path and why he was so great and why he would be a good fit for our team. And it, it's probably the you know greatest introduction that anyone's ever made. So I, I know that you know what you're talking about when you you're talking about this subject. It's it's like you said that there is a basically a gap in the market and the fact that women in tech and minorities in tech that you're supporting are actually essentially doing better than the counterparts and people still aren't investing in them. I'm like people are still not looking for the non-traditional backgrounds. They might think they are, but they're truly not. And I'm like, that is a huge gap in the market. And the fact that the um, STEM graduates specifically, and I actually hope to continue to grow Strategia. Well, I know we will. We'll grow Strategia to the point that we actually can remove the idea of needing a university degree. And we're looking just for amazing people in general. Um, that's, that's all part of this. It's continuing to open the door. So like giving an opportunity, but also searching in a completely different way to find essentially better talent while it's actually on paper people would say that's worse talent these people don't have the skills but if you can find the skills you can you can do that and that actually really stems on to a point i wanted to discuss because i i love the way that at hearst lab you're using kind of fellows is what i think you call them where it's a shared services model to my best understanding if you could tell us how you're going about that in things like devops and other areas of your company to share the services of, of different areas yeah, absolutely. So we offer support really in three key buckets. So our founders get access to the legal team at Hearst. They're incredible. They do about 85% of Hearst legal work in-house. And then our scouts. So we have a group of about 100 women executives who are full-time Hearst employees, and then they donate some of their time to help our startups. That can be anything from a warm intro to a potential client, to help with their marketing strategy. But then really our full-time team is that portfolio support team that you mentioned. So we have experts that are in UX design, business development, branding and marketing, and DevOps. And those are all areas that we've identified that early stage startups have a need, but not necessarily the resources to hire full-time yet. So remember, these startups are usually coming to us when they've got an initial product built, they may have a client or two, they're pretty early still. And so they you know, don't necessarily have, maybe they have one engineer when they come to us, maybe they're outsourcing some of their engineering. And so for our DevOps engineer, he does everything from continuous integration, continuous development to help that engineer save time and reduce errors every time that they deploy. He helps them with their infrastructure, thinking about security, cost efficiency, he helps with site reliability. So he really is sort of DevOps plus. He does a lot of different things. And what I think is really valuable about what he adds is that he's now worked across dozens of our startups. So he knows what analytics platforms people have tried and used and liked or didn't like, um, what infrastructure has really tripped people up later as they've continued to grow, what big enterprise clients are going to ask for when they're down the road and you know, negotiating a deal. And so that extra value that he adds is just golden. And then there's also a really great community. So a lot of these engineers are going at it solo right now. And so we have monthly CTO lunches that he hosts where 
people just talk about whatever, you know, sort of is top of mind. So often it's hiring. Um, lately, there's been a lot of discussion of what these enterprise clients require in terms of infosec docs. And how do you put those together as this young startup that doesn't necessarily have all of your, you know, protocols in place. And so it's just really helpful. Again, that's sort of that mentor discussion, right, where you're able to learn from the others that are around you at a really similar stage. Yeah, that, that's so useful. It's really cool how you've been able to build that out and, and use the shared services model, because then it's not just someone's getting an investment or a company's getting investment or some advice or some mentorship. It's actually, I, I thought that was amazing the way that you mentioned that your DevOps fellow has, he's worked with dozens of startups at this point and he can be like okay i used to do it this way but you're actually going to trip up in six months or in 12 months and can also give advice for when it comes to the enterprise customers that the startups might work with that's uh that's worth more than money that's uh, an amazing actual piece of experience it's huge and these founders are there are 10 things on fire at any given time and you're just trying to prioritize so to have the peace of mind for someone to come in and say this is how you want to do it is so appreciated. I see it. They all want John to work on their teams full time. And thank goodness, you know, he's still with us, but he, he's just an incredible asset to them. That's really cool. And so, so something you mentioned there, prioritization, it comes up in a number of my conversations and uh, it's always a struggle. I think it's hard to figure out what to do next when you have so much on your plate so from your perspective and from the the companies and people that you're investing in how do you go about figuring out what is the most important thing to do and, and manage your prioritization yeah so i would say from looking at our founders and their point of view the founders that do this the best there's a couple of different things that i think they do well one is often if you've got co-founders or other executives that you've brought on your team, if you're able to let them own their area and really take it and run with it, that now cuts out a huge part of that to-do list that you have on your mind. So if you've got a CTO that you really trust and they can take product and engineering, that is, that's huge. You know, and I think the second piece is really being able to carve out time to hand projects off. And so what I mean by that is our founders that get the most value out of Hearst Lab are the ones that can take a minute, take a breath, and figure out how to employ those amazing you know, uh, group of fellows that I just mentioned, get them working on your marketing and your UX design and your DevOps. But I fully recognize that that takes some effort to carve out those projects, bring people up to speed, make your ask really clear. But once you do that, it's now in someone else's hands and you've got five people working on something that would have been on your plate until then. Yeah, so it's 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 looking at how to increase your ROI. It's a case of I'm going to put a bit of time into this, do it well, and then I will have a massive return that saves me time. And I can exactly. see the the importance of the handing off. Basically, we're talking about handing off work to a good quality person in the company. It's like at a startup, got to make sure you hire the right people, find good quality people that you trust that are mature. I don't mean age, mature in mindset. And then you can trust that when they're up to speed, they can take. And as a, as a sole founder and CEO, I see how important that is where I brought in a great technologist to lead my technology simulator. And that's now handed off. Yes, I still advise and take reports on how we're getting on and make sure we're heading in the right direction. But I don't have to do that chunk of work, which would have been maybe 50% of my time if I was having to do that alone. And then you start yeah. to look at where's the next 20%, where's the next 5%, 1%. And then really as a, as a founder and CEO, it's, you're setting the vision, the strategy and keeping the whole company moving towards that. And you don't have to do every single piece in the middle. If you can hire the right people to lead that for you, you can have a lot more success. Yeah. And I know that it's hard to do oftentimes when a founder maybe has been at it solo for a while and they know the ins and out of every single part of their business. It's hard to just let something go and let someone else run with something and it doesn't always work out. So I think there's you know definitely some fear there. If it hasn't worked out, I think people are even less likely to sort of let that go. But if, if you can learn to do that and find those really trustworthy people, as you were talking about, then it's definitely how we see startups grow the fastest. Awesome. And so we, we're speaking in 2021. It's uh, currently September. And last year was a pretty big year for a lot of reasons. So 2020, lots changed. The entire world of work is probably the easiest one to start talking about. So with all of these teams that were previously based in your New York office, 
and the future of people that you're working with, how have you and Hearst Lab adapted to the events of 2020? Yeah, we, of course, miss being able to see everyone. I think we didn't know how great we had it all being together, but I have to say that overall, I think the positives have outweighed the negatives. So first of all, in March 2020, our founders and their teams just didn't miss a beat. So, you know, within an hour, everybody was immediately virtual and just up and running exactly as they had been. We also saw that they were immediately looking at different ways to support their customers and figuring out their contingency plans. So they were really creative and I think thinking about being very realistic from day one. What if this doesn't let up for 18 months? What does that look like for our business? What are we going to do? And we definitely saw bigger impact on businesses in certain sectors. So for example, one of our startups that we've invested in is AppDeco. So they're a furniture resale marketplace and they take care of the full end-to-end logistics. So Connor, I can see your couch on their website. I'll, I choose to buy it. They'll pick it up from your house and deliver it to me. So when the pandemic first hit in the New York City area, they were forced to completely shut down because they weren't considered an essential business. But fast forward a few months from then, and their business actually had grown to be bigger than it ever had been. So it turned out that people were stuck inside their homes. They decided they wanted to replace their kitchen table. They hated their desk. They needed a new chair. And AppDeco was a really great place to buy or sell the furniture that they had. And now that company has launched in Philadelphia and San Francisco, and they're just they're, they're flying. They're doing really well. And so, you know, overall, I would say just one other trend that we've seen is that our startups are more and more hiring remotely. And so they now have access to really great talent that's more affordable. And this has helped them grow their teams more quickly, which you know then helps grow their businesses. And in terms of new investments, I've loved getting access to events and founders across the country. So, you know, I can pop into one event that's based in San Francisco and then another one that is in, you know, the middle of the country and get to meet different types of founders. And I'm obviously sitting at home and uh, we've now looked at a number of different companies across the country and have invested in companies from Memphis, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Boston. So I'm really enjoying that piece and getting to do a more diversification in terms of geography and the companies that, that we're in. Um, and then I think the last thing here is that I've been really proud of our team, that they've been able to continue to support the founders completely virtually. And I would say that our founders would say the quality is the same, if not even better in the model that we have now. Amazing. So being able to really embrace this this leap into digital before, yes, we all had our laptops and we were able to connect through phones, but really we were still in the, the traditional workforce. It's kind of funny that that was only last year. I know it's 18 months at this point, but yeah, we, we were doing things a lot slower and, and quite inefficiently when now we've been able to, and I know it's not for everyone. So don't think that I'm just ignoring the fact that like many people can't have this opportunity to be able to work from home, et cetera, but we're focusing on the area that we're in and what we're doing. And it's like, that's awesome that you've now got a much larger talent uh, opportunity in terms of you can hire different people, you can find startups and new ideas from totally different uh, regions that you wouldn't have had before. And actually the opportunity, like you mentioned, where there were so many people back in March, what do we do? How are we going to do this? And then suddenly it's like, okay, a few months has gone by. We've kept our heads on straight and we've been innovative and creative. And now the opportunity is there. And I think that a lot of people hesitated on that. It's right, really, I think that took a bit of optimism and, and self-belief to really say, right, we can make this work. We're not going to panic. And uh, and I saw it with people I was even working with at the time. And it's like, you've got to keep your head on straight. You've got to know that there's still a world out there. There's, there's a market opportunity. And if you can adapt and change and shift, then you actually can succeed and grow. And then I think we're in this like era of like a reshuffle in the market as well. So wherever you end up, after, I think the, the reshuffle is still going on. You had to have got into it as, uh, during this last 18 months in some capacity. But we're in a time where the market is quite healthy for a lot of areas. There's lots of investment out there. There's lots of people looking for work. There's lots of people hiring. There's lots of movement. That's all very mm -hmm. positive from the, the working perspective. So if you can continue to find your place in, in the market and the, and the ranks of how things shift around at the moment, that could be where you end up and, and grow and race towards for the next five, 10 plus years. And from that increased confidence and getting to know other people, building your network, building your company, guess what? You, you may have even more opportunity than you ever thought about. Absolutely.
Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's always good to, to hear those kind of things. I didn't, I don't always bring up the, the how people have adapted um, question in, in every podcast at the moment. Cause I was doing a lot of like Q and A's and work with that in the early period of the pandemic. But mm-hmm. I just find that given you're working with so many companies and you have such a good view into different locations, it's always really cool to hear what actually happened and then how you have adapted and improved from then. Yeah. And I think from a founder point of view or an employee point of view, it's also given them access to different training programs and different boot camps that maybe would have been in person and not accessible to them before. So if you're a founder in New York or San Francisco or Miami, you know, everything is a stone's throw away. You've got so many different options of meetups and different things that you can do, but I don't necessarily think that's true in a lot of other cities in the U.S. So it's really nice too that they now have a much bigger community to be a part of. And I've seen so many different people that have changed careers in the last year or so too, and they've done something similar. They participated in a boot camp or a training session. They did maybe some shadowing, you know, different types of people that weren't, wouldn't necessarily have been available to them if it wasn't a virtual option. So it's just, it's, I love when people all have an opportunity and there's been sort of a great equalizer in the last 18 months where if you've got an internet connection, you've got the opportunity. Yeah, I've seen that as well. This era of people getting extra, going out and doing their, their upskilling, doing boot camps, trying new things. And, and just the amount of people that have been saying, I've been spending all this time at home or I've seen, I've been able to recheck my life and think about things and then truly be like, I'm going to jump now and take, do something entirely new. This is the the era of, I know some people call it the great resignation or the, it's like the time of the career transition. I, I just think it's really awesome to see so many people saying, I don't like the thing I'm doing. This company doesn't serve my purpose or my cause or my mission as a, as an individual. I'm now going to go and do something I care about. And that matters to me. Um, and I've even been able to go and do that off the back of this as well. There was just so much time to think. And uh, I wasn't necessarily sitting around at home. I was out riding my bike quite a lot. I'll be honest, because I like doing that too. But, you know, there's lots, there was lots of time to think and decide where am I going? Like what, what if, yeah. if this, if we came to this moment where in the middle of New York in like March and April of 2020, where we were like, there's no pigeons, things are really kind of scary. Uh-huh. No, it, it got really quiet. And I was like, okay. Um, I don't know if the rest of the country got to feel that, but when you're in the middle of New York City and you're looking around and there's nobody there and there's no planes in the sky and it's silent, it's kind of weird. So I think when you're looking at that and it almost came to this like end of time type sort of moment for some of us, then to look at where we're going and, and what we're doing next and just like find what you believe in and your passion and then pursue it. I think that's that's awesome. And with the influx, as we mentioned, of there's a you know great numbers of venture capital in the industry right now. There's people also having more buy-in for those that are less represented or underserved. This is the time. So if you believe in yourself or have an idea, this is the moment to kind of get out there and start these conversations. Absolutely. When we when Hearst Labs started about five years ago, there were a few other firms that were focused specifically on women-led startups. Now there are so many micro VCs that are focused on underrepresented founders and it's great. We want all the competition we can get, right? Because actually we don't think about them as competition. We're participating in these rounds often with other investors alongside us. And so it has been very exciting. I think it's exactly what you were saying is that there have been quite a few really smart accomplished people who have thought, I want to do something that's more aligned with my values and what I believe in. And also I see the market opportunity here and these teams are doing really well. I want to be a part of dedicating my life to helping close this crazy you know, funding gap that exists by gender and race and you know, all the other factors. I think startups and investing, especially early stage, is just inherently risky. Hiring somebody is risky, I think even less so though. And I think something that we both do is help de-risk that investment, either for a company or for future investors, by providing those different services and helping with training and all of that support. Um, And I think that the individuals that we work with probably would have found a really great position or fundraising round anyway, but I think being able to work alongside them and provide that support and then having that connection to the next step is just helps them get there even faster. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, the, the, the value that you're providing is pretty clear to see. And especially when you even mentioned the, the numbers that you've achieved and, and supported with people coming through the program and also who the, the valuations they're achieving afterwards. But yeah, it's, it's a very cool thing. And I, and I like very much what you're doing. So look, Lisa, we, we've now got to the, uh, the exciting part, although the whole thing's been exciting, but we're, we're, now, <laughs> we're now at the, uh, the, the three quick fire questions for today's episode. So question number one, if you had the chance, what is the number one thing you tell your younger self on day one of their first job? Yes, great question. Um, I would say, listen to your gut. It took me a long time to learn that my instinct is pretty good. I think in early jobs or even in grad school or undergrad, I would often uh, have certain ideas about how to approach something or just a, a certain feeling that something wasn't quite right in you know, a team or a certain approach to something. And I often would just sort of sit back because there were people more senior than me in the room. And after enough time seeing that there was some truth into that initial gut feeling that I had, I've learned that there's something to that. And so it's worth following up on that gut feeling that I have. That's so good. I, that's a really awesome one to hear, actually, and to think about because I don't think that people do trust their gut enough. It's it, it's there. It's your gut feeling is actually there because it's tra you've trained over time to know what's right or wrong for the scenario that you're in, and it's probably actually you you having a calculated knowledge now and with the experience you've got to know what's right or wrong. That's right. And there's definitely value if you can help explain that gut feeling. So, you know, it, with investing and meeting founders, there's a certain amount of gut, but I also think that's how you introduce bias to the whole process. And so our team is really great about saying, okay, why do we feel really good about this team? What is it? How do we put words to explain that feeling that we all have? So trying to, you know, make sense of that, that initial gut feeling. A adding data essentially into Always. the data-driven <laughs> decision, but it's stemmed from the gut feeling. Exactly, exactly. So question number two, what is the number one personality trait that you look for in future leaders? Yes, so I think we do this when we're looking at founders and I would say the most prominent trait in really great leaders is the ability to communicate. So being able to read the room and deliver the right message for that group. So we see this with our founders that they know how to communicate to their employees, their investors, their customers, prospects, and that they can deliver a message that may be different to each of those groups, but that they're really authentic in each of those interactions. They just understand that each of those sets of people have a different perspective, and so that they should focus on different things or explain it slightly differently. And that's a really hard, um, I think, quality to have. And I think it's tough to learn. So I think some people are innately just really good at it. And it really comes down to empathy, right? If you can put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand what do they care about most here? What are they worried about or what are they most excited about? And really focus on that, then you're able to nail it every time. That is such a good one. I, I love that. It's uh, it's so clear to me exactly where you're coming from. It's that, yeah, being able to, you're speaking to somebody, you can feel what they feel, but then you're not just having, you don't tell the same uh, scenario, even if it's the same point and it might, you're trying to get the same point across. You're talking to marketing, you're talking to sales, you're talking to technology, you're talking to leadership or your board or to new hires. You have to be able to translate and liaise with all those different teams. So like being a good liaison, and that's right yeah, yeah like you're a middle person for a lot of conversations and i'm trying to translate it in the right way so it's received and absorbed yeah that's a great way to put it so number three what is the number one non-negotiable skill that you expect from everyone that you hire yes i love this question so i would say resourcefulness so a team member that has the curiosity and the grit to just figure something out or see an opportunity, to me, that's how you make a dream team. And I think it's hard to hire for this, but as an applicant, I think you can help demonstrate it to someone that you're interviewing with. So an example that I've seen in the past is somebody who wanted to learn a certain coding language and they went out and did it, right? They had a side project, they pursued it on their own, they took a boot camp, and they just did it. They were resourceful, they figured it out. Um, so, you know, anything that you can do to demonstrate your ability to pull together the different pieces that you need to, to move forward is huge and I think demonstrates what type of team member you'll be if you were to join a company. 
I, I like that one as well because you're able to say not that so let's say it's an application and you're, you're, someone's doing a job application it's not saying okay i use these tools because i use them it's saying um i use my resources and my my ex I, i've created new knowledge by going to other places to find out what something was i had a problem i wanted to solve and i had some passion involved and i used these tools and technologies so all while explaining that you had both a passion and some resources or resourcefulness you've also then got the opportunity to explain and i solved that problem using using these tools and technologies. 100%. And I'm going to remember that person who had this story about they really wanted to solve this problem and say so they wanted to learn Python to do it and they did it and this is what they saw rather than the person that says I learned Python. Right? There's a whole and yes humans we want to hear those stories. So demonstrating that passion as you mentioned as part of that whole process is is such a great great um piece of advice to give to anybody interviewing. Yeah, it's something I look for every, every single time. And it sounds so almost funny when you're saying don't don't just say that you learned Python or that you use Python, but we still see that. That's still people still do list the the stack. And we're not saying don't mention what tools you use or technologies you use. We're saying talk about the the reason why mm -hmm. you went about doing something, the why behind it, the passion it generated for you, and then explain the problem that you solved because we want to hear that you can solve problems. and using and dropping in the way that you use the technology to get there is the perfect setup and way to do that and also builds a really fluid conversation shows the communication skills how you collaborate with people and how you uh, can again liaise or translate around the team as well yeah that's right and i think it's hard to see the distinction between those two until you've done some hiring i wish it was easier for people to be on the other side of the table earlier in their careers because it's so apparent after you've seen a candidate that does that versus a candidate that doesn't that's a great idea and something that maybe we'll implement at strategio where not when we're doing our, our sort of job training and and uh, upskilling and in for enterprise maybe we could add something in like a hiring practice where they actually speak to the other people in the same simulator at the same time and run an interview and try and quiz what's good or bad and and essentially vote for people and we can all help each other improve like that i'm i'm going to implement that since you I love that I love that <laughs> That's great. I'll I'll let you know how that one goes in the in the next upcoming simulator. Great. So um Lisa, it, as as always it's fun for me to get to sit here and host people like yourself. But today's a, another great episode. I've really enjoyed talking with you. You have an unbelievable background, your education, your knowledge, uh, the way that you all, all you're doing essentially is giving back and helping people get opportunity and and building great companies. So I just think you're a very inspiring person and and a great person to host today. No, oh, thank you so much and I could say all of that back to you. I'm so excited about what you're building and all of the people that you're working with and helping train and I already know that you're going to make such a big impact. So, I'm I so admire what you're doing. Thank you so much and thank you everyone for listening as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the DevOps Diversity Podcast. I've been your host, Connor Dellenbank, and today's episode was brought to you by Strategio. Thank you.